in Isaiah we're looking at, but the song itself is verses 4 to 9, uh, but we read the bit before and the bit after to uh, help us see the context uh, and also, as we'll see at the end, um, how we're called to respond to this song. So Isaiah 50 opens with another reminder of God's sovereignty. It's a theme we're seeing come up again and again, isn't it, in Isaiah, the sovereign Lord, sovereignty over all things and especially over the situation of the Jews as they sat in exile, wondering if he was going to save them or not. And these two pictures in verse 1 Sorry, I haven't got it up there, but if you've got a Bible there, look at verse 1. There's these two pictures that help capture the grief that they were feeling as they were exiled in Babylon. They were like a child who has lost its mother because she's been divorced and sent away. And they felt like a person who's lost everything by being sold into slavery. So the images that capture the grief that they felt but they're also confronting because the Lord says these pictures are true pictures. The Lord has sold them because their iniquities deserved it. He has divorced them because their transgressions deserved it. So he's saying the suffering, the grief that you're feeling, I have brought that about and my actions in doing that were just. He's he's brought about their suffering. But his judgment isn't random. It's not just an arbitrary thing. He's not a fickle God. He's not doesn't take delight in judging them. He says, Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? The Lord had done a thorough assessment of his people and he found that there was no one who was righteous. There was no one willing to listen to his call, no one ready to answer him. So their exile was just, it was fully deserved because when the Lord spoke they refused to listen when, they, when he commanded, they refused to obey. Instead, they had turned to other gods. They listened to the words of the other gods and they obeyed them instead of him. But just as he's acted sovereignly in judgment, so he's able to act sovereignly in redemption. Remember, he's the creator of the universe. He has power to dry up the seas and to turn off the sun, if he so wishes. If he can do that, then he can redeem his people. So as we saw last week and the week before that, all the way through these songs, the Lord is enlarging our vision of him as the sovereign creator and judge of the whole earth so that we may know, as Abraham did when he said, the judge of all the earth will do what is right. 
So we can't have confidence in the justice of God if we don't see him as sovereign over all things. If there's one tiny corner of the universe or one creature over which he does not rule, then we could never be sure that his goodness and justice will prevail. There'll always be a lurking threat somewhere that something or someone might succeed in separating us from his love. So unless we accept and receive his action in judgments, whether it's judgment for sin or whether it's his fatherly care as he disciplines us as his children, then we have no basis, no foundation for being sure or certain of his actions in blessing us or saving us. If he has no power over the things that bring hardship, how can we be sure that he has power over the things that bring us good? So Israel failed to listen. They refused to learn and obey the Lord and this led to their judgement. But in grace and mercy, in order to redeem them from this judgement, the Lord steps in, in the person of this servant. And the servant does on our behalf what we have failed to do. So the portrait of the servant here is of one who listens, who speaks and who obeys. Now what's the thing that qualifies him to speak What is it that gives his word power to sustain the weary? Well, it's that he hears, sorry, I've got the scriptures out of order here, he hears as one who is taught, verse 4. His authority flows out of his submission. The power of his words lie in the fact that they're not actually his words. They're words that have been given to him. They're actually the Lord's words. Now, you may be familiar with Jesus' words here in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. See how Jesus is taking his cue here from this servant song in Isaiah 50. By using these words, come to me and I will give you rest. Come and learn from me. He is claiming to be this one who speaks in Isaiah, the one who promises to sustain with a word the one who's weary. Now, if we look at the wider context of Matthew 11, which is always, we always need to do that, don't you? Um, you might get sick of me always talking about we need to see this in context, but we do because so many errors have been perpetrated by Christians because we've taken verses out of context. If we look at the wider context, we'll see Jesus explaining where this authority to give rest comes from. 
and what that rest actually looks like. Now most of Matthew 11 is about John the Baptist. And remember we saw how John the Baptist is the fulfilment of Isaiah 40, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now Jesus has been going out, having had his way prepared for him by John the Baptist, he's now going out into the towns and the villages proclaiming the kingdom of God and healing people. There's signs and there's wonders and John the Baptist is in prison and he's hearing about what's taking place and he sends a message asking him to confirm that he truly is the Christ. Now Jesus' response to this request is to talk to his disciples, not about himself, but about John the Baptist. Essentially he says that John the Baptist was the first sign that the kingdom of God was at hand. And he says if you accept what John did and what he said, then how much more do you need to accept who I am as the Lord whose way has been prepared by John? Then the tone changes, verses 20 to 23, with words of strong, harsh judgement. These are words that are never quoted by those who just want to portray Jesus as a good teacher or as only ever speaking about nice, positive things. But it's vital that we hear these words because they set the immediate context then into understanding his words of where he promises rest for the weary. So he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Strong words from gentle Jesus. Those who witnessed the signs that pointed to his identity as the Messiah but refused to repent, refused to receive him, he says they're worse than Sodom. Sodom, the ultimate image in the Bible of wicked people. He's saying Capernaum, a Jewish village, if you don't repent, Sodom is more righteous than you. Repentance is much more than me just feeling bad about my sin. And it's more than me trying to stop sinning and to do good things instead. Repentance is a change of mind and a change of heart to be one who is taught by God. Repentance happens when, in the language of Ezekiel, God takes our stony hearts and replaces them with hearts of flesh, hearts that then cause us to walk in obedience to God. 
It's the part of conversion that's uh, often ignored when people are called to become Christians simply by believing in Jesus. Just call on Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, invite him into your life. Faith is only one side of the coin. It's faith, it's repentance and faith. Jesus himself declared, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. So Jesus condemns Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum because they refused to repent when the truth was right before their very eyes. But then this condemnation flows firstly into a prayer and then into a call. The prayer, as all prayer should be, is acknowledging the Father and his sovereignty. And it's quite a shocking prayer for any of us who don't like the idea that God is sovereign. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So why didn't the people in these cities repent? Well, it's because the Father, in his gracious will, had chosen as yet to keep the kingdom hidden from them. These people in these cities, they were the wise and understanding Instead, the Father has chosen to reveal the secrets of the kingdom to little children. That's a term that Jesus often used of his own disciples, those who had believed in him. Now that might not sound gracious to us, for God to hide the truth from people. But remember, the human condition is that we have all suppressed the truth in our unrighteousness. We've all refused to give thanks to God and to glorify him as God. So there's no human being in their natural state who sincerely desires to know God's truth. There's no one who's seeking God without God having first sought them. God never withholds the truth from people who are earnestly seeking it. But the thing is, there is no one who earnestly seeks the truth on their own. So the judgement on those who suppress the truth is to confirm them in their hardness and to keep that truth hidden from them. Now what's gracious about the Father's will is that despite my hardness of heart, despite my hatred and suppressing of the truth, he chose to make it known to me and to you. He chose to open our eyes to see. He chose to send the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts to enable us to believe. That's purely, totally a work of grace. And he does it in such a way that I'm never able to say, I believe in Jesus because I'm wise and understanding or intelligent. 
I can only say I believe in Christ because Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst. So after that prayer we finally come to the call that Jesus issues and the call begins in verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father and no one knows the Son except the Father and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So how may I know the Father? Well, only when the Son chooses to reveal him to me. And on what basis can the Son reveal the Father to me? Well, it's because he knows the Father. And how does he know the Father? Because all things have been handed over to me by the Father. It's because the Father has given himself to the Son. The the Father has made himself known to his beloved Son and the Son knows him that the Son is now able to give us that knowledge of the Father. Everything Jesus gives us is what he first received from the Father. Now don't misunderstand that as saying that Jesus is somehow deficient or unable to do anything of himself. What it's saying here is Jesus is the only mediator between us and the Father. As the Son of Man, he's received from the Father everything that human beings were designed to receive in order to fulfil our mandate to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and rule over it. If we'd done that, then we would be living in God's Sabbath rest. But that's the mandate that we rejected in Adam. But it's been graciously restored to us in Jesus, the last Adam. So true rest is only really known by a human being when they know the Father, when they know that everything that they have has been given to them from his hand through the Son, Jesus. In light of that, Jesus continues the call, come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And see what that rest looks like. Sorry, it's later in that verse. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. That's repentance, isn't it? To become someone who learns from God, turning to God, being taught by him. Rest always comes from repentance. We can only know true rest when we come to Jesus and when we receive from him the full revelation of the Father that he gives. By rest, Jesus isn't talking about a physical well-being. He's not even talking about a kind of a, a subjective sense of well-being or rest. Rest is being at peace with God. It's knowing God's favour towards you, not because of you, but because of Christ. It's knowing for certain that you are a justified person 
and that because you have been justified through the work of Christ, then there is now no condemnation, either from God or from anyone else, even the devil, even other people, if we rest secure in God's justifying grace, then nothing will be able to separate us from his love. So the servant hears in order that he may teach, but he also hears in order that he may obey. The Lord has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. To have an open ear is to, to be a willing listener, a listener who's prepared to act on what they hear. Remember how Jesus often said, if anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. He first said that after telling the parable of the soils, the seed and the soils, which was a picture of the different ways that people respond to the gospel. If you know the parable, you remember then there was, there was the, the seed that fell on the path that was taken away by the birds and that represents those who hear the gospel but then straight away refuse to listen. And so the word's taken away. That's Chorazin and Bethsaida who saw the truth but rejected it and so it was hidden from their eyes. Then there was a seed that fell on rocky ground and on weedy ground and that represents those who initially listen to the gospel but then they treat Jesus as if he's just an add-on to their lives and so he's quickly pushed aside by trials or by the comforts of the world. But then there are those who have ears to hear the seed that falls on the good soil. They not only listen, but they have open ears. They listen and they believe. And then their listening in faith produces the fruit of obedience. Jesus never presented an easy believism. That meant trusting in him just as saviour, but not as Lord. He made it very clear. Anyone who wants to follow him, he said, should expect suffering and persecution. They should be prepared to lose everything in the world, including possessions and family, in order to know him. He reminded a scribe who promised to follow him wherever he went that that would mean being homeless. To another person who wanted to first go and say farewell to family and friends, he said, no one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The modern prosperity gospel tells us that we just need to simply have faith, just the one side of the coin. Just have faith and God will give you health and wealth and security in this world. You'll have your best life now. Jesus said the opposite. He said faith in him will mean potentially losing all of those things because just as the world hated Jesus, it'll hate his disciples as well. We're living in the the closing years of what's been called Christendom, an era when Christianity, uh, at least in the West and big parts of the world, has been the largest religion. And 
when the majority of those in the West identified as Christian, even if they didn't actually practice it. But things are changing. Christianity has gone from being the expected faith through being merely a respected faith to being a rejected faith. And more and more now we're seeing that it's an objected to faith. In my younger years it was common for me to hear people say how they rejected Christianity for themselves but it's okay for someone else. These days the objections I'm hearing is people claiming that Christianity is actually bad for the world and that someone who believes it is bigoted and hateful. We've gone from being the expected faith to being the objected to faith. Now, progressives say that the solution to this then is to change our beliefs, to take away the offensive parts of the gospel and to make it fit in with what the world says, to win the approval of the world. And it's no coincidence that churches and denominations who have embraced progressive Christianity, so-called, they're the ones that are quickly dwindling and dying because what they have doesn't look any different to the world. So the world says, why should we bother coming to church if you're not going to give us anything different to what we already have? And the world can provide it in a much more spectacular and fun way. So progressive Christianity offers this easy believism which just says Jesus is no different to all of the self-help celebrities of the world. Now in the end the prosperity gospel and progressive Christianity are really the same thing because they create a God in our own image. In one, he's the cosmic businessman who treats us as consumers. And in the other, he's the cosmic social worker who treats us as clients. How does Jesus portray God? He's the Father and he's the King. So his people are first and foremost his sons and daughters and his servants. He's not made in our image. We are made in his image so that we might know the security of being able to cry, Abba, Father, and that we might know the wonderful privilege of obediently proclaiming Jesus is Lord and living in light of his lordship. As I've been saying, this call to seek God's will instead of ours is for anyone who would claim to be a child or a servant of God. But it's a call that we and Israel alike have failed miserably at, which is why the servant must come, why he must come and fulfil this obedience on Israel's behalf and on our behalf. He lived the life we failed to live and he died the death we deserve to die. And by doing both, he accomplished on our behalf the perfect 
righteousness that God requires of his children. So the servant hears and he willingly obeys. He has an open ear and note that he doesn't take credit for it. It's something the Lord has given him. The servant doesn't put his hand to the plough and look back. He turns not backwards. Even when the path is one of suffering. In the first servant's song, we saw that the servant would be gentle and humble. Then in the second servant's song, we saw a hint of suffering where he asks if his labour has been for nothing and in vain. But here it's very clear, the servant of the Lord will be a suffering servant. He faces beating, spitting, ridicule and his beard torn out. You know, Jewish men were forbidden to cut their beards or to shave off their beards. That was so that they wouldn't look like the Gentiles who would cut their hair in various ways or cut their hair off completely as a sign of devotion to their idols. The only time a Jew could cut his hair was in a time of great distress and mourning. When King David sent a peace envoy to the king of the Ammonites, the king, King Haman, sent them back in disgrace with half of their beards shaved off and their clothes cut in half. And it says that they were greatly ashamed to have their beards cut. Now, mercifully, David let them hide out in Jericho while their beards grew back before they returned to work in Jerusalem. But this, this action by the Ammonite king was so offensive that it led to war between the two nations. So the point of him having his beard pulled out, along with all the other things mentioned, isn't so much the physical suffering, although that is there, but it's the suffering of disgrace and humiliation by the hands of wicked men. But here's the thing that we see in his servant. You can't humiliate a humble person. If a person, through serving, has already lifted everyone else up into a position higher than themselves, if they're putting other people's needs before their own, if in the words of Philippians 2, they do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than themselves, that's a truly humble person, then it, it won't bother them when others step on them and try to push them down because they're gladly already at the bottom of the heap. Now, of course, it bothers us, doesn't it? That's because we're still learning true humility. Humility isn't self-abasement, it's not self-pity because they're still self-focused things, aren't they? Learning humility is about learning to be focused not on our own needs but on the honour of God and on the needs of those around us. It's about us entrusting ourselves to the Lord to lift us up in his time 
and in his way. See verse 7 then, the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. The servant's motivation what enables him to not turn backwards as he faces this path of suffering is that he knows the Lord as his helper, as his vindicator. That's what enables him to set his face like flint and to complete the mission he is sent to fulfil. If for a moment Jesus had been more concerned with his own honour than his father's honour, if for a second he'd chosen to put his own welfare before those he came to save, you and me, then he would have been unable, unqualified to do what he came to do. He would have fled from the garden before Judas arrived with the soldiers to arrest him. In fact, he probably would have just stayed in Nazareth, working quietly as a carpenter, minding his own business, staying safe and comfortable. But of course that's just hypothetical, isn't it? He didn't turn back. He went to the cross. Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How could he despise the shame of the cross? And let's be clear, crucifixion wasn't only one of the most painful means of execution, it was also one of the most debasing. A person was hung naked in public before the eyes of a mocking crowd and they would often hang there for days before they died. For Jews to be hung like that was the sign of an ultimate curse. Deuteronomy says, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain at night on the tree but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. The cross was a shameful, humiliating, debasing thing but he could despise the shame of the cross because he who vindicates me is near. He didn't need to answer the charges brought against him because he knew that his father delighted in him. He didn't need to fight back. He didn't need to give insult for insult because he knew that in three days the father would vindicate him by raising him from the dead and giving him all authority in heaven and earth. And so he could pray for those who were crucifying him because he knew that this very act of giving up his life was accomplishing atonement for their sins. Now each servant song so far has been followed by a call to respond. The first servant song, the call was Sing to the Lord, a new song. Then the second was followed by Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. 
Well, this song is also followed by a call to respond, but it's a slightly different call. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. See, this is a call to repentance and faith, to come out of the darkness and into the light of God by obeying the voice of his servant, Jesus. When Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary, and I'll give you rest, that's a command that we're called to obey, to respond to his voice. But this call then is followed by a very solemn warning. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled, this you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. If we think that the solution to being in darkness is to light our own torches and to live by their light instead of coming into the light of God through Jesus, then the result will be disastrous. So Jesus calls us to come to him, to find rest. It's the same call. It's the the kindness of God. It says you can choose to live by your own torches. But see what I've done in my servant. I've lit a fire, I've lit a torch that's never going to go out. Come into that light and know me as your God.